and Revelations podcast where the shoot the breeze over some of our most beloved artists music that fires us up. If you want to get in touch with us, you can use our email address, which is vrpc at gmx.com. That's vrpc at gmx.com. And I think it's fair to say, Stuart, it's been... How have you been? Yes, indeed. Well, it's lockdown number week 50. It must be nearly 50 now. Surely, what, what's this? Well, middle of February. So, yeah, lockdown week 47. I don't think we're ever going to come out of lockdown. It feels... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Feels like we're living in some sort of Soviet dystopia. But uh, other than that, life's well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's night. It's pissing with rain. And yes. beer o'clock, really. What are you drinking tonight, Stuart? Well, Sharpie, I'm still on, as I have been for the last three weeks, my Korean Mowgli. Mowgli. I, I know that sounds like the guy from uh, The Jungle Book. I think it's called Mo Mac, Mac Gioli. And the reason... <laughs> is basically because I found this um, uh, wholesaler down in like England somewhere who uh, I bought like 12, a case of this stuff for mucho good price and um, I'm enjoying it still. What about yourself? Are you there, you Stuart? Yeah, sorry, yeah. I think you just cut out there. Are you with, with me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. Grand, grand. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm still quietly working my way through my German beers um, on the uh, Tigrin Seer Hell, which has got a lovely label um, oh, of the of the see. of the brewery that it's came from. Can you just pull that weed back? for the for the um, for our listeners? Of course, this is lockdown. Um, Sharpie and I are actually in separate rooms. We are connected through the medium of the interweb. Uh, that's all lies. We're actually spooning in the, the same bed. But uh, yes, okay, very nice, very classic um, um, Bavarian style beer. That looks fine. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful. I thoroughly recommend it. So this was this was a crate of beer that I got annoyed with myself uh, after work one day. I thought I need beer, so I couldn't be bothered going to the shop. So I thought, how do I get beer on the internet? So I just went on Amazon, and they've got a surprisingly good selection of beers you're able to get off of there. Mm. And there was a German selection, and I thought, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, and uh, they've got yeah, a really good selection through through their twelve, and I would highly recommend it. Cheers! Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's a pity we buy so many things through Amazon. It's become like the state store in kind of <laughs> Soviet times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there any good um, um, uh, liquor stores out? your neck of the woods that you care to go to or you'd like to promote? Not really, no. It's all just local supermarkets and things. So, yeah, it's all a bit depressing, really. Um, yeah. You've probably got more around you, though, do you? There used to be one, actually, uh, just in the main square uh, here. But, unfortunately, it's uh, it kind of... The main square here in, in the town I live in is kind of... Uh, I wouldn't say neglected, but it's kind of on the wrong side for foot traffic. And they didn't really get an awful lot of people. Um, and it was more um, like a wine merchant rather than a, than a liquor store. Um, the nearest one is actually, um, for people who are uh, Scotland-based, um, is in Portobello. And uh, it's it's all right. Um, when I lived in Edinburgh, there was a great place just around the corner for me in in, um, in the Broughton area of Edinburgh. Um, the name of the place I was, I forgot, I've forgotten about, but um, that, that was really good. They, they were the beer place. 
and they had lots of uh, beers. But I, I found that in the last sort of like, mm, I'm going to say five, since, yeah, last four to five years, like there's a lot of kind of like, like hipster beer, which I don't think is very, it, it seems to be uh, marketed by having a can and a kind of stripey pattern, you know, can you, we're having some technical difficulties here. Can you hear me, Sharpie? No. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, you just got out there, Stuart. I think the weather's probably got quite a lot to do with it at the minute. Oh, dear, yes, indeed. If, um, we're, I'm looking at the window here, and it's, um, well, if you're uh, a non-English speaker, I'm going to use an idiom here, raining cats and dogs. Yes. It is pissing it down. It really is. Well, on uh, rainy days, what do you listen to, Sharpie? Well, you listen yeah, a bit of a mixed your... bag this week. Um, listen to a bit of jazz. Um, listen to a bit of carcass, actually. I really yeah. enjoyed listening to a bit of carcass. Um, heavier side of, you know, that kind of doom sort of stuff. Um, and then kind of actually digging into... The, the the band that we're going to discuss this week um, and really kind of drilling down into uh, YouTube clips and live footage and, and things like that of, 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 of this band. Yeah. And you, Stuart? Yeah, I mean, I... I um, well, I've been listening a lot to the Polish prog band, the Riverside. Um, they're a... For those who don't know, they're kind of like, I would say they're the kind of closest thing to like a modern Pink Floyd as you're going to get. Um, they released, uh, the, the two albums that I really like are Trying um, for the New Generation Slaves and uh, the next album, which, Jesus, I'm getting old, I've forgotten the name of it. But those two albums uh, were, were the last uh, with, the, uh, with the guitarist who uh, passed away actually quite young. Um, they, those two albums are fantastic. Also, I've been really checking out, uh, well, rechecking out uh, Amorphous Queen of Time, which I think is just a sensational album. Mm. It's got a great cover, but I just uh, this album came out in nineteen, uh, sorry, two thousand eighteen, and I just think it's a brilliant album. And uh, um, Amorphous is a band I'm not that familiar with, but this album on the back of listening to a few songs that were on YouTube, I thought this is this is sensational. And, uh, well, um, I wouldn't call them a guilty pleasure band. I've always liked the 69 Eyes, um, the kind of goth and roll type thing, a Finnish band. I saw them once many, many years ago in Frankfurt, Germany. And I just think they just, they consistently knock out like really great rock music. Rock in the sense of kind of like a Guns N' Roses type rock music, you know. Um, and yeah, I just I just think they're 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 great. They they released an album two thousand eighteen West End, um, which was really good. I, to, uh, the album I've been picking up just now uh, this past week is uh, their two thousand and nine album uh, Back in Blood, uh, which was when they were really getting a lot of promotion stateside. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been listening to, Sharpie. But Sharpie, what are we? What have we been listening to? This so week? yes. This week's album um, is going to be Iron Maiden's Virtual Eleven. Um, it's an album that was panned in the Maiden back catalogue. Um, we have done 
questions recently um, from from both of us um, that we could well, from dawn till dusk. So we actually thought we'd mix it up a, a little bit this week and discuss something that isn't so highly regarded and explore kind of why that is, what happened to the band, what were the circumstances like in the music industry around the band happening at the time that may have been influencing factors. Um, so Iron Maiden, they are a band that we both love dearly, I think it's fair to say. Um, and have, you know, I, I think it's it's also fair to say that they have a pretty significant influence on metal, past and present. Um, but this album, Stuart, Virtual Eleven, released 1998. Um, how well did you know this album before this week? Um, I did not know this album really um, uh, musically at all uh, until this week. Um, I do recall the album sort of being around when it came because the, at that time, if, I, if I'm getting my dates right, um, a lot of the, the classic Iron Maiden albums, the, the kind of the, the, the home run series albums from the 80s were really re-released on CD with kind of like, um, what would you call it? Uh, like enhanced CDs, I think they called them at the time, which had the music videos and sort of like... Uh, you know, you could put it into your computer and there would be things you could sort of investigate, you know, uh, stories and stuff. So I bought a lot of the albums like, uh, you know, Seventh Son, The Seventh Son and Power Slave and Fear of the Dark around this time. And then Virtual Eleven came out. And um, uh, But the, 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 the kind of only um, thing that I recall, actually, I used to buy the, uh, the magazine Guitar World and there was a review. It wasn't really a review magazine. It was more about guitar techniques. And I'd buy it for the, the, the music tabs. They'd transcribed some songs, so it was easy to learn. Um, and I they had a small section for reviews, and they did have Virtual Eleven. And the way they kind of talked about it, or the album and the band, was like, this is something from a bygone era. Um, so I remember the, the, the cover... And I remember the fact that it was promoted, but I hadn't heard any of the music until this past week. Well, in saying that, I had heard one of the songs live um, from their Legacy of the Beast tour, but I, I'd never heard it on, on record. So long-winded way of saying, no, I hadn't heard anything. <laughs> so on that note, what did you actually make of the album? You know, Iron Maiden's back catalogue, fairly extensively, you know, the 80s stuff, you're a fan, I think, of, of, of the, the latter-day stuff as well, Book of Souls, um, yeah. Dance of Death, all, mm -hmm. all, all, all that kind of stuff. So what did you think of this album in amongst the, the rest of the back catalogue? I, well, the thing I have to say about uh, this album, I have to sort of group it with what I would call 90s Iron Maiden. And the thing about 90s Iron Maiden is, um, I think I'm correct to say that all the albums in the 90s were recorded in Steve Harris's like personal studio, I think. I think that's right. 
and all of the albums sound crap. And I don't mean that despite <laughs> they just don't sound like big, they don't sound like they've got any balls. It all sounds very cardboardy, it doesn't have any impact, doesn't have any oomph, doesn't have any drive. Now, um, that's you can almost get away with that when you've got some good songs. Uh, and I think, um, so like, let's just put this into context further. The first album of the 90s was, uh, uh, what was it called? Bring Your Do- uh, Ah, No Prayer for no the Dying. Yeah. yeah, and that obviously had their, I think, I'm, am I right to say that's their first number one with Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter? Yes, it knocked Cliff Richard off a Christmas number one spot, I believe. Did it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, um, um, as you were saying, the like Iron Maiden in the eighties were just a kind of on an upward trajectory. They were getting bigger, better. Every album was getting better. You know, bloody bloody blah. Seven Sons of Seven Sons. They're kind of they were tiptoeing into the kind of what we would call contemporary Iron Maiden with the prog. Then you had No Prayer for the Dime, which sounded crap. And apart from bringing your daughter to the slaughter and Tail Gunner, the songs that were they, they kind of like dropped off a cliff a bit. Then they came back with uh, Fear of the Dark, which was a good album. They had a lot of good songs on it. Um, and it had a cool album cover. Um, but of course, I mean, the big news there is their main guy, Bruce Dickinson, left the band. I mean, do you know the reasons for him leaving? Uh... Yeah, I, I recently read his uh, autobiography, What Does This Button Do? Um, and essentially, it sounded like burnout. Because right. they'd worked their arses off continuously yeah. up to that point. And I think he was just scunnered. He wanted to explore new musical avenues. I think he was a bit like. fed up of the constraints in a lot of ways of, of Iron Maiden. Um, and he just wanted to do something different for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, like, uh, you know, Bruce Dickinson is, is a key part uh, of the band's sound of the band's character, of the, ba- the band's presentation. And I think very, very, very significantly, he is also a key counterpoint to the main songwriter of the band, Steve Harris. So um, Bruce Dickens is quite a strong character. Um, he was able to, um, I mean, I think uh, everybody knows that they, they, they often sort of clashed, um, you know, heads effectively uh, on what they were doing. You know, Steve Harris was the, is, is the main sort of, uh, uh, He's the governor, guess, isn't he? You know, he's he's the governor of the band. I mean, he's he's big he boss. But, yeah, so I think Bruce Dickinson, he's the one that says, well, why are we doing it that way? And what about doing it this way? But, you know, Bruce Dickinson, you know, I think is is the kind of the yin to his yang. But that's important because it, it you know, like, you know, like in, in modern life, you know, there's a lot of people in echo chambers, you know, on Twitter or on the Internet or whatever. They only hear the things they want to hear. And without the, the, the challenge of something fresh and of something different, they get caught in their, in their own little world. Um, Dave Murray, the guitar, he's the guy who is the kind of the politician in the band. Not the politician, but he's the kind of like facilitator. He's the one that sort of sits back and observes and says, well, listen, listen, Steve, you know, maybe what Bruce is saying there is not such a bad idea. What if we did something like this? You know, he kind of like facilitates between... Um, between the band, but obviously, after Fear of the Dark, um, the counterweight to Steve Harris has been removed, and then they've gotten the new singer. And uh, Sharpie, maybe you can explain a little bit about Blaze Bailey. 
So Blaze Bailey, um, he he auditioned for Iron Maiden. I'm not quite sure how many people they auditioned, but I think it was a, a fair number. Um, he came from a band, Prong, I believe. No, it was not Wolfsbane. Wolfsbane. Beg your pardon. Sorry. Yes, Wolfsbane. Yeah. Um, who he's actually gone back to tour with recently. But yeah, sorry, I beg your pardon, Wolfsbane. Um, auditioned for Iron Maiden, did yeah. two albums with Iron Maiden, and then was kind of unceremoniously sacked, just as mm. um, Bruce Dickinson kind of got a bit bored again with what he was doing and wanted to come back on, on board Iron Maiden yeah. ship. And then went on to have a a solo career, career, and we've both seen Blaze Bailey live, haven't we, Stuart? Yeah, I remember seeing him in, in Aberdeen. Um, that must have been the early 2000s yeah. in a very small uh, nightclub. Um, and, yeah, uh, I mean, to, to coin a phrase, he's a, he's a trooper. You know, he's a, a kind of, you know, he lives on the road. He's had a, a slightly tragic life, personal life, Um um, but I was just kind of intrigued, like how he, like how he got the gig. I can see that he kind of, he kind of looks a little bit like Bruce Dickinson, and I, I can sort of see his kind of singing direction is in the Bruce Dickinson Dio kind of avenue, but it 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 is not. He's he's so very different from Bruce Dickinson vocally. His range yeah. is completely different and. I, I, I went back to watch some of their tour and w one of their American tours was cut short because his voice struggled maintaining yeah. the higher registers that Bruce Dickens was singing at. And there was a bit of a feeling, I think, that um, the band were almost forcing unrealistic expectations on, on Bailey's voice. Yeah. And certainly when you hear certain songs of the Dickinson era, Hallowed Be Thy Name being one, he does struggle. He does struggle. But I want to make it quite clear. I don't think Blaze Bailey is a bad vocalist. I think he's an exceptionally good vocalist. Yeah. I just think he's very different from Bruce Dickinson. And yeah. that dynamic after a, a singer being in a band so long, yeah, it was always going to be a struggle, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I don't know. Like, we'll maybe pick up, pick this up later in the conversation. But you know, like, Iron Maiden were in, a, were in a, a tricky position. Like, for all like we think of them as being a massive band, you know, like you're only as kind of as good as your last album. And, and it's you know, a big band can fall by the wayside pretty quickly. And, you know, as you're aware, like, uh, and I'm sure the older listeners will be, like, in the 90s, heavy metal was, it was, like, way off the radar. You know, we had Britpop here in the UK, we had grunge in the, uh, in the US, and then uh, in the kind of, in the metal scene, you had the, you know, bands like, uh, well, industrial bands like uh, Fear Factory and Rock Zombie and then Korn were, 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 coming up and then here in the UK we had bands like Paradise Lost and you know you know the the the, the rock metal scene was quite different to what you would call the classic heavy metal scene and 
Iron Maiden were the only band still doing anything. I mean, Black Sabbath were basically like slightly um, uh, embarrassing old, you know, old dads. You know, Judas Priest were nowhere. Uh, I'm sure Motorhead were still trundling along. Slayer but, struggled. They, they released Diablos and Musica, and they, you know, that was. I, would, yeah. I mean, that album still I struggled to listen to, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, very, very time. So, um, but at the same time, you know, uh, I, I remember this time being like Iron Maiden were still kind of like, um, I don't want to say an icon, but, you know, everybody knew Iron Maiden. And to, to the point where, you know, a few years later, I don't know if you remember that song by that uh, band, I'm just a teenage Oh, yeah. Bag. Yeah. Listen to Iron Maiden. Uh, oh, my God. Kill me now. You know, I, Iron Maiden were almost like a kind of like a, a, a pastiche. Cliché. Yeah, cliché. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so very challenging uh, thing um, for a, a new singer to sort of come into that. And, you know, there's, there's two ways he could have gone about it. He could have, like, said, right. You know, I'm going to be completely different. I'm not going to run around the stage like Bruce Dickinson. I'm going to like stand stock still and stare at this. You know, like you could have been like the singer from Ramstein or something. Would that have worked? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I mean, rock and hard place. But I think as we'll, we'll we'll talk about the function of Blaze Bailey in this point in Iron Maiden is really just to keep the ship going mm -hmm. forward. You know, I think, uh, but. Um, uh, to, to go back to your sort of original question, you know, I the thing about this album that sort of stuck out to me is that the the sound was terrible, and I think that is part of the, part of the reason was there was not a strong character to kind of go against Steve Harris in this, and it isn't until really the return of Bruce Dickinson that the kind of the sound quality of the record starts going back. They they go to different producers, different studios, these sorts of so things. And I think that's it. So the background to this album is quite, quite interesting. Um, the album was tied to the release of the Ed Hunter computer game. Yeah. And yeah. the album artwork borrowed pretty heavily, particularly in the, the, the inner sleeves, heavily mm. from that. They, they got a, an artist they'd worked with previously to, to do the front cover but so there was nods in the front cover to the Ed Hunter game but they also were trying to cram in this concept of it was uh, the World Cup 1998 yeah. Yeah. Steve Harris big football fan, Aston Villa fan um, a lot of the promotion West Ham, West Ham. West Ham. Um, big football fan and a lot of their promotional stuff before the album was released was basically them playing five-a-side football all over the world. And they asked, actually asked the artist to cram in a bit of football in the corner. And it's just so disjointed. So with these things going on, with so much going on at, at the time, I wonder if Steve Harris's eye was off the ball a little bit. I think is there an argument that he had too much on his plate, that he was investing too much time into other things and the music suffered because he took his eye off the ball? 
I, I possibly. I mean, I think you got you know, as you know, you mentioned with Bruce Dickinson, you know, they've been on a kind of like a kind of album tour, album tour cycle for all of the eighties, um, and you know, Bruce Dickinson left was it ninety three, I think. Um, you know, I think they were all pretty exhausted, and also, you know, they were probably about our age then. You know, kind of late thirty year olds, maybe even forty year olds. I'm not quite sure. Uh, yeah, there must yeah there must have been thirty forty. Um, you know, and I know that at my age, you know, like some like you you kind of lose a slight a bit of a identity. You know, what I mean, you're you're not sure where you're going. Um, I mean, the great thing about uh, Iron Maiden and the guys in it is they're kind of work like working class guys and uh, and working class um, um, you know in the UK that kind of means just a very you know I think that means middle class in American terminology I think you know just you know normal simple people not you know not um, uh, egotistic at, at all no you know? they, by um, all accounts every time you watch an interview they're all lovely guys. Yeah, totally, yeah. Totally, totally, totally. So, um, uh, I kind of lost my thread there. Um, yeah, sorry. sorry I lost my... No, no, it's okay. Um, but, um, yeah, so to get back to the, the, the music, actually, so for me, as being someone who'd listened to the first time, you know, Future Real, I thought was actually all right. And the single version of Angel and the Gambler, I kind of found myself sort of humming along to the other day um, after listening to it. So I thought um, they were good. And I had heard The Klansman when uh, Bruce Dickinson sung it live on tour on the uh, Legacy of the Beast. I took my dad to see Iron Maiden up in Aberdeen uh, 2019. That was a brilliant, brilliant show. And they, they played two Blaze Belly era songs and they sounded fantastic. They played Klansman and they played, uh, uh, what is the first song from X Lord of the, Fla- the, the Lord of the Flies? Uh, Lord of the Flies, is it? No. I uh, God, I am terrible for remembering uh, songs. Yeah, I know the one. Um, it's, it's the one that starts off with the, the monk chant and things, isn't it? Sign yeah, of the Cross. That is a cracking song, and th- and this yeah. is the th- this was kind of the point that I, I was kind of alluding to was if you listen to the X Factor, it seems much more focused. There's a flow to the album. It's a very long album, but that is Iron Maiden. You know, um, you yeah. kind of expect that, but you know, there's the songs are crafted more to suit. Bailey's voice so that the best comes out of both the band and Blaze Bailey so they're obviously trying to figure out how to work together but there's more hits than misses on that album because of the focus that has gone through it yeah I'm not sure having listened to both albums this this past week, I'm not sure I'm quite in agreement. I mean, I, I remember um, when the X Factor came out, I mean, I remember seeing Iron Maiden on Top of the Pops, which was like the number one music show on TV at the time, and with Blaze Bailey, with the song uh, Man on the Edge, yeah. Man on the Edge. And I thought that was a really cool track. And I really liked the artwork for the X Factor. It looked sort of scary. 
looked heavy metal, you know. Um, but having listened to the two albums this week, X Factor is definitely the better artwork. But because they both sound, they both have this crappy sound from Steve Harris's studio. Because Future Real uh, uh, Virtual Eleven is shorter, I found that less painful. Oh, to interesting. To. I, mean, really interesting. I, don't, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Um, so, like when I listened to Sign of the Cross on the album, I was like, "Wait a minute, is that not that song I heard it in that show?" But it just didn't, it just didn't have any kind of. I mean, these two albums, they just don't have any kind of like balls or energy yet. I think about them, um, and yeah. I'm sure live they would have been still great, uh, and we'll talk about the, the the live aspect of these two albums. But I I don't know I I I probably prefer slightly uh, Virtual Eleven musically to the X Factor, but um, definitely the X Factor got the better artwork. The the Virtual Eleven artwork that started a series of really crappy album covers for me for Iron Maiden. Because Iron Maiden, the visual is a key thing for them. And the Eddie covers, you know, the first, the 80s album covers are all brilliant. No Prayer for the Dying is a pretty cool album. Fear of the Dark is brilliant. X Factor I really liked. But then Virtual Eleven, Brave New World, Dance of Death. I mean, even one of my favorite albums, which is uh, A Matter of Life and Death, I'm not that keen on the artwork and Final Frontier artwork. They're all kind of like comic book and crappy. The last, I mean, the, the Book of Souls album artwork, that looked like an Iron Maiden artwork to me. But, you know, basically between 1998 and 2000, and when did that album? 15, but the artwork was crap. Well, because my big problem with the Virtual Eleven artwork is because computer game technology advances so quickly and so rapidly yeah. and the ability to generate better and better graphics exponentially grows that because they've lifted graphics from the computer game it dates the album artwork so badly like horrifically um there's really bad uh photoshopping with heads on football players and things like that and it's just I actually thought that was a real photograph, though. I thought that Steve Harris was playing football with Paul Gascoigne and Tino Espria and, you know, Pat Riviera, Mark Overmars. Yeah, they, they no. <laughs> I mean, they, they did they did a couple of these guys, but, um, yeah, I think it was, like, the first kind of photoshopping and things. And because because of that, I think it's, it's dated really badly. And... Even the concept of the, the, the front image, it's just a bit naff. And there's, like you say, in the early ones, there's a bit of punk aesthetic with Killers and Iron Maiden. And then there's the uh, serious kind of graphic quality of Somewhere in Time and Power Slave. And then laterally with the Book of Souls. But this is just, it's just, too many ideas crammed onto one image, really, and and the technology used dates it quite quite badly. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like a lot of movie people, you know, they, they they're like 
a lot of the movies that stand the test of time use uh, use the new technology um, either very sparingly or they kind of break through to the next phase. So like The Matrix is using technology which was way beyond whatever was before. But a lot of other movies which didn't have that the technical expertise or the budget or whatever, where they've used um, you know computer graphics sparingly, those movies have tended to you know, last the test of time much better. The movies that are in between where they've used the kind of the contemporary, quote unquote, t- cutting edge technology, a lot of it, it dates very, very quickly. So, I mean, even in the Matrix type thing, you know, the first Matrix movie was really using technology super uh, advanced. In the second one, Matrix Revelations, a lot of the, the fight scenes are actually CGI. And the first time you saw it, you wouldn't have noticed it. But if you look carefully, you actually realize that it's a kind of a CGI Keanu Reeves, you know, fighting Agent Smith, you know. Um, and that's, that's, that's a very subtle uh, example. I can't think of another movie where, well, there's all those kind of like B movies that do a lot of stuff like that. This, this is a case of that. I mean, I remember, like, I was never really a computer guy uh, person, but I remember picking up magazines, you know, like, you know, PC Gamer or whatever, and it would show you graphics of, you know, all the latest kind of like role play, you know, Doom would have been coming out about that time. You know, the graphics were crap. But, you know, but, no, I don't like to say that. The, the graphics by today's standards are very, very um, uh, basic. Um, but at that time, yes, they were kind of uh, sort of coming in. If you put all your coins in one basket, there is a chance that the basket will break. And I think. Uh, that was one of the things. So um, we've both seen Iron Maiden live a couple of times. Um, I think we saw them. In fact, probably we went. To, the first time I saw Iron Maiden was in the Dance of Death tour. That was with you in Glasgow. I think so good, so good, so yeah. good. That to, to this day, actually, um, that is one of my favourite uh, Latterday Maiden albums. The song Passion Dale on that just. Every time I hear that song, blows my mind. The riff on that is just world class. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't, got, I haven't really gotten into that album. I've never really listened to it properly. I'm going to have to do that. I really liked uh, uh, "A Matter of Life and Death." I, in fact, I love that album. Um, when we went to see uh, Iron Maiden in Glasgow uh, on that gig, uh, standing beside uh, Terry Butcher, the former England captain, who was at the time I think the Motherwell <laughs> manager, football manager. He was standing. Yeah, he's right a big fan, and he's, he's um, Steve Harris. Referenced him in uh, an interview. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was cool. And then uh, in the last ten years, I've seen Iron Maiden three times. I saw them on the Final Frontier album up in Aberdeen, and I saw them with you in uh, Glasgow. Uh, what was that? Twenty sixteen on the the Book of Souls tour, and then I saw them uh, in twenty nineteen with my dad up in Aberdeen again, Legacy of the Beast. And of course, all those uh, venues uh, were big, you know, 10,000, 15,000 uh, uh, people venues. But, you know, these two albums, uh, The X Factor and Virtual Eleven, Iron Maiden were on, on, on the lean, as we were sort of saying, the lean period. They were playing much smaller gigs. And I remember going to see Dream Theater in Glasgow at the garage, uh, this must have been 1997, so it would have been the year, I think, before, just 
or the seven ninety seven ninety eight. So I remember seeing posters on the wall for Iron Maiden. Now I thought it was at the garage, but in fact, actual fact, it was at the Barrowlands, which is a, you know is as a as a kind of uh, a theater size is a big place, but you know for Iron Maiden coming from you know like Madison Square Garden <laughs> to uh, basically small clubs. It, you know, for a lot of musicians, you know, like, I don't know if people have seen the Dirt movie, but Motley Crue, you know, they struggled when they hit the, the lean times, you know, having been a massive band, having to becoming a very small band, you know, in relative terms, you know. For Iron Maiden, I think, are more down-to-earth people. That was the word I was looking for. Yeah, you sent me a, a link to an interview of David Murray, at this time, and it was in a place, um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it was a 3,000 cap venue, you know, and that, yeah. to, to see where Iron Maiden are now, and what they were bef before, for them to be playing 3,000 cap venues on a, on a tour cycle is, is quite the the downturn, I think, isn't it? Uh, yeah, um, but I suppose, like I said, because the, the, the like the they're all like down guys. I think they love playing. I think they love you know inning uh, crowds. You know, as long as there's a crowd, I think they're happy. Um, but yeah, I mean, for a lot of other bands, it could have been the case that you know, like they could have been petulant, you know, and just sort of said, "No, this this is this is not it." But you know. I think the key thing about the Blaze Billy era, era is that it was it really was more about keeping the ship afloat. I don't think Iron Maiden really knew where they were going. You know, there wasn't a captain. There was, you know, Steve Harris was there, but you know, they, they were they were in a storm. The musical world had shifted. The music industry had gotten much bigger, but suddenly Iron Maiden were getting a little bit smaller and were getting squeezed out. They weren't quite sure where it was. You know, as we're saying, like new metal would have been the kit. You know, what albums were coming? Well, what, that's a good point. What albums were coming out around? I mean, personally, like I, I remember listening to Machine Heads, The More Things Change, Fear Factory's Obsolete came out, um, Foo Fighters, Color in the Shape as well. There was uh, Hillbilly Deluxe by Rob Zombie. So these were very dynamic. Bands very musically, sonically more engaging. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, I, I dropped out of Iron Maiden's current material at this time because, quite frankly, there was more interesting stuff to listen to. Um, if you yeah. listen to the more things change now, it crushes, it absolutely crushes. This doesn't crush, you know. This is this yeah. is weak. This no. is disjointed. This is a bit naff in places, um, and I think with what was going on in the music industry and bands releases, I don't know if the world wanted Iron Maiden at this time. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a good point actually because um, you know, like Iron Maiden are a heavy, are and were a heavy metal band. Heavy metal means it's kind of like it, it's heavy, it's aggressive, it's um, on the edge. But 
heavy metal in you know 1988 had sort of completely changed you know you have a band like strapping young lads playing something which was unbelievably heavy and unbelievably aggressive you know or you'd have you know like rob zombie and industrial music and bloody bloody blah iron maiden were kind of sitting there like playing quote-unquote heavy metal but it was not heavy and it wasn't aggressive and it wasn't scary it was kind of nothing you know you know the, the, that's what i'm saying like the, the, the kind of like they were caught in the storm, the, the, the ground from underneath them had shifted and they just didn't know where to go. Um, um, it, obviously, when Bruce came back, they kind of went off in that kind of a progressive, they took their, the classic components and went off in the progressive role. But I think there's two things that are important at this era. One, from the Iron Maiden perspective, is that they actually, that because they kind of went downhill so bad, I don't want to say, it's, I don't like saying it, but we'll, we'll just, for lack of a better terminology, they went downhill so badly that people, they kind of went off radar. But that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And when Bruce Dickinson came back, you know, a lot of PR oomph and excitement came with it. You know, I remember, you know, they're playing the Wicker Man on Top of the Pops a few years after this, you know. So when, I, you know, uh, Bruce Dickinson, back that was their kind of re up yeah i specifically remember buying brave new world the album after this and oh. i hadn't actually heard the wicker man before buying the album i just saw one up may it rest in peace i had started selling a new iron maiden album and i'd had a break from iron maiden not really dug their Blaze Bailey stuff, I thought, well, you know, what the hell? And I put it on. And the difference between Brave New World and this, it's light years. It's absolute light years. And you alluded to something earlier on that um, it's not... I mean, Steve Harris had a co-producer in this. I don't really know who he is. But they brought Kevin Shirley in for Brave New World. Yeah, yeah who'd yeah. worked with uh, the Black Crows and uh, Silverchair and, and people like that, I think, recent, in, in that recent time. And I think what happened was they distilled down the things that were, that Iron Maiden are, are good at. They, he brought out and they yeah. did them well in that next album. So this song, this sorry, the, the storytelling, every song through that album has has got a narrative, you know, a logical yeah. narrative. Some of the choruses are a bit useless, but Iron Maiden is not a stranger to a fairly useless chorus. That's okay if the rest of the song rips. And the majority yeah. of these songs rip this the riffs are up front and central and hit you over the head and progress you through the through the narrative um the solos are cohesive mm. to drill down a little bit into the, the the music of virtual 11 i'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here because i think it's quite important to who iron maiden are as a band so I believe that any good solo 
should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, like a little story within a story. Mm. And one guitarist can do that, but what Iron Maiden do so well with before now with two guitarists was a start this little story of, of of solos, guitar solos, and then the next yeah. guitarist picks up that narrative of the solo, continues it with their own little flourishes and and textures and 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 personality of of who that guitarist is, whether it's Yannick Yers or Dave Murray or or Adrian Smith, whoever, they now do that with three guitarists. And that's the exciting yeah. thing of, of of Iron Maiden now, is that they, they create these interweaving little guitar solo stories with with their mm. solos. That is just not present here. There's A solo should never be in a song just for the sake of, of there being a solo. And there's too many solos in this album that are just there for the sake of, of there being a solo. And that's that's just like chewing gum to the ears. It's it's pointless. It's a pointless, pointless exercise, especially if the narrative of the song a lot of the time is so disjointed, you know, that there's yeah. funny little double time bits that don't make sense. And, yeah. you know, the some of the editing of the songs is just so wrong and... I, I found one of the things I, I thought actually when listening to the album is it's a lot of it sounded like film music to me it, in the sense that it, it it's kind of backgroundy music somehow it just didn't catch me um, at all and I think that's a problem with the dynamics and and this and, and everything but yeah it just yeah it just I think a big part of it was there wasn't a counterpoint to Steve Harris, you know, and I think, you know, like most successful marriages, there's a little bit of argy bargy, but it, you know, the yin and the yang keeps the thing together and makes the whole better. I, mean, I think it's interesting to listen to some of the biggest albums on, on earth and they've all generally got a pro producer external to the band of some description and I think you're right I think bands particularly of this size need an external ear to yeah, yeah. counterbalance somebody who's so engrossed and absorbed in that band because one of the most jarring things on this album is actually Blaze Bailey's voice I don't know if he's trying to promote Blaze by being so noticeable on top of the band, but it's like Blaze Bailey's voice floats on top of the music a lot of the time, and it it's quite jarring. Mm. Even like, yeah. even in, in in the songs that you know and recognise, like the Clansman, just Blaze Bailey's voice, the mix of it is just so overbearing sometimes, you know. Um, I think there's good songs on this album. I do think there's good songs on this album, and some of these songs work better live. I went back while I was kind of writing up my notes for this, um, and I had a Blaze Bailey era uh, concert with Iron Maiden on, and they obviously the first quarter of the of the set was off these two albums. 
and a lot of these songs actually do make more sense live, which kind of tied into there's an interview, uh, a promotional video of the band out there for Virtual Eleven, and they kind of go go to great lengths to explain they wanted to record the live vibe of the band, and a lot of the takes that they used for the final album were actually initial first live takes. Right. And I think in the live environment, these some of these songs do make more sense. Like The Angel and the Gambler is better live. Future Real, Blaze Bailey still plays live in his solo material set to this day. And that that is a great song, actually. You know, um, Lightning Strikes Twice, it's got a really silly chorus, but actually it does sound better live. Um, I think... Uh, sorry, if I could just interject there. I think, um, as we were saying earlier, like the, the kind of 90s Iron Maiden um, is, is generally very poor with... You know, Fear of the Dark is, is a good album, and one two songs off of No Prayer for the Dying are good. Um, and I was thinking, God, really, it was quite a poor time for them. But then I, 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 I um, one of my favorite albums when I was at school was the the real uh, the, the live album, which was a real live day yeah. one. So and that is is that the double disc? So yeah, my yeah. first experience yeah. of Iron Maiden was a real live one. And mm-hmm. so there's songs off No Prayer for the Dying on that, and it's the heaviest they've ever sounded. Yeah, they sound, they sound good, yeah. And it's, it's so that I'm always stuck in this mindset that a real live one is actually the better of the two discs. Yes, um, the yes, that that's the that's the one I liked, which was the kind of later part of, of Iron Maiden. It's funny, they released another live album about the same time, which was almost the same tracks, uh, but that I think was the Donington sort of farewell gig. But yeah, those albums proved to me that, you know, in the 90s, you know, maybe it was like them at their very top before the crash, you know, like, you know, it was the stock market boom. But I mean, you know, um, having them played like big arena halls across the world in Japan, America, and all over Europe, um, you know, they changed singing, they changed sound, blah, 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 blah. The music world changed. They were playing smaller venues. I think one of the positive things that came out of that was they, maybe because they had to, or maybe because they wanted to, they started playing in more different countries. So, like, I think on Virtual Eleven, they played Turkey and Malta and Israel, I think, for the first time, you know. And it's been kind of a kind of consistent thing that for the last sort of 10, 15 years, Iron Maiden, tours have gotten bigger and bigger and you know ed force one and all that go to different places play china or you know south america obviously i think they must have played more or less every country down in south america you know um, they started really um you know going to the non-traditional places you know because the traditional places were america canada europe uh mainly western europe but parts of eastern europe the uk uh scandinavia Japan and Australia and that you know that was it they, you know bands didn't go anywhere else really you know but in this tour they were playing yes they've gone you know various places of course there was problems with that I think a lot of the tour dates were cancelled officially because of um, 
uh, what's his name, Blaze Bailey voice issues. I don't know if that's a smokescreen for they didn't sell enough tickets. Um, but I think uh, for for me, listening to those two albums, I think the key thing is that the, for let's call it the implosion of Iron Maiden at that point created absence, created um, you know a yearning for it later in time, but also. Um, it created space for other bands to come through. So, you know, particularly in Europe, you'd have bands like Stratovarius, you know, the Finnish kind of uh, power metal band and Gamma Ray in Germany and um, Hammerfall. I don't know if you're yep. familiar with them. A lot of them, classic, they were playing like classic heavy metal much better than Iron Maiden were at this point. You know, some Stratovarius albums are really great. Uh, what's the other one? Sonat- Sonatica, Artica, you know. Um, Hammerfall play that kind of like, what do you want to call it? Motorbiker, yeah, Euro metal kind of. Yeah, but they, they they kind of marry the kind of like a Blind Guardian would be another one. Like they kind of marry that kind of like German beer hall sound with kind of like you know, you know, denim leather motorbike, beer drinking kind of thing. But you know, you don't go to see uh, you know, and well, Blind Guardian will will do kind of like, you know, Teutonic Tales, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're the most obvious Iron Maiden German style, style band, you know, um, but like Hammerfall, you know, just very sing along, very kind of like chuggy, 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 you know, great to go to a concert. I've not seen them personally live, but I'd love to see them. The albums are kind of okay with some like two or three like standout tracks, um, Stratovarius, more technical side, um, so I think, and obviously, like, uh, not long after this period, you know, like, in the UK, we had um, Dragon Force. Now, Dragon Force are just a kind of Iron Maiden band, turned up to 11, and instead of playing at 33 RPM, they played 45 RPM, you know, with this sort of Japanese computer game sort of thing. But, you know, without Iron Maiden, none of these bands are there. No, absolutely. I mean? But I think at the time, though, these all these bands are more exciting to listen to and watch oh. than what Iron Maiden were yeah. producing. Oh, yeah. That's what the, the point I'm trying to make is like the kind of Iron Maiden's um, absence um, or, you know, um, allowed the space for these bands to kind of percolate through, you know? I mean, in, in, in some, some terms, like, if you think in the general sort of heavy metal world, because, like, a lot of bands, sort of, let's say, quote unquote, resurrected in the sort of two thousands, two thousands. It kind of squeezed a lot of space out of for the new bands to come. Yes, through, I see know? that because, like, yeah, that that makes that makes sense. So bands that are playing similar sized venues, say three thousand capacity venues, mm. competing with Iron Maiden are maybe more dynamic in visuals or, or music or both or whatever are then at that point more likely to be picked up by the music press the metal hammers the krangs and and promoted yeah. a little more because iron maiden have have had that that they're at that time yeah. it's been seen that their time's like done and dusted and they're of the past Listen, look, you know, one thing that has to be said is like Iron Maiden's manager is, is a, an excellent music manager. You know, he knows the business, he knows how to promote, he knows the connections and all that stuff. 
I suppose the point I was trying to make, like, I think Iron Maiden were like headliners in Donington, like sort of 2006, 2007, something like that. You know, really, if they had not kind of, quote unquote, resurrected themselves, really, that should have been a band like, you know, In Flames or Soil Work or Dark Tranquility or, you know, a, another kind of uh, maybe Kill Switch Engage. You know, maybe that is where they should have been, you know, promoted to the, the, the top, you know, uh, thing, you know. But, you know, Iron Maiden, everybody, you know, now everybody loves them and people our age take their kids or even older take their kids to see them and the kids love it, you know. Yeah, I, I listened to another podcast um, called That's Not Metal. It's very good. I'm a subscriber um, and I've been a follower of theirs for a long time. But their question repeatedly over the past three or four years is, where's the next Iron Maiden going to come from? Where's the next Metallica going to come from? Where's the next even Slipknot going to come from? If bands like you've mentioned, In Flames, Soil Work, whoever, aren't picked up and promoted properly by the music media in the same way that they've, again, taken yeah. up with Iron, Iron Maiden since you know the Brave New World days, like whenever... Bruce Dickinson does anything these days, you know, Metal Hammer are right on it, you know, and filling pages and pages and pages of stuff about it, you know. But so where's the enthusiasm for producing the next download headliners? You know, and that's that's a concern yeah. when these bands are becoming, you know, Nico McBrain's in his 60s, isn't he? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think it's, it's slightly, uh, I mean, you know, when we were kids, the music industry and the media was very much like an hourglass. You know, there was a shitload of stuff being, you know, thrown at the companies, but they sort of like were like museums. They curated what they thought was going to sell best. And so then they spread that back out. Whereas now it's kind of more like, um, you know, like a, like a, a, a tunnel, like anything that's out that goes in can come out. But it just means that when you're at the other end of the tunnel, you know, you know, what do you look for? You know, it's very difficult to kind of coalesce around one type of thing. You know, I mean, you'll have bands that I've not heard of and I've got bands that you've never heard of. Now, if this had been 20, well, say 25 years ago, you know, if I had heard of a band, more than likely you would have heard of it or read about it or heard somebody would have said something. But I could tell you some bands you know, that you'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, because, you know, like we were, like I was saying earlier about uh, um, Steve Harris being in a kind of a slight echo chamber, the, the, the way that information is disseminated on the internet, we're all in a kind of echo chamber, you know, it's, it's the reason we're doing this is so that, you know, we can expose ourselves to other types of music and hopefully other people can, you know, do that, you know. Um, so, to answer your question, where will the next big band be? I, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's going to be, I mean, if music festivals come back, I have my doubts. They're, they're, they're... If they do come back, it's going to have to be very local, I think. You know, instead of having like a tea in the park or Reading or whatever, it's going to have to be like, you know... I'm going to pick a, a small town in England, you know, Doncaster Music Festival, something like that. I think it, I think I really think it's going to have to be back to basics, local bands doing that because the, you know, 
the reason I think a lot of festivals and music concerts are not going to come back is insurance. You know, the you know if you're going to have loads of people coming and you know the insurance comes well, you know we're going to need a, a super huge a premium for this. Is it? Well, I can't afford to do that if I can't afford insurance. You know, then I can't do the gig. You know, um, so there's a lot of things that you know. I, but hey, listen, creative destruction. You know, maybe maybe it's a good thing. You know, I don't I don't know. It doesn't seem that way at the moment. But maybe it will be a good thing that there'll be more smaller local. I mean, I remember in Aberdeen when we were kids, it was a kind of like thing out in like Bridget Dome. Event in a music. tent. Yeah, typical Aberdeen, very badly managed, very badly promoted. But you know, that kind of thing could be a way of of getting, you know, local bands a little bit of kind of local airplay uh well not airplay but you know local exposure and you know you know i'm trying to look at a positive way in a dark time yeah so bringing it back to this album virtual 11 did you in any way enjoy this album yeah, listen. I'm not. I've I've been using uh, you know bad language for most of the thing. I. It's one of those things, like if you didn't know Iron Maiden before it, and this is the first time you'd heard it, you'd probably think that's all right. It's nothing, you know, it's nothing wrong with it. It's not. It's not brilliant. It's not bad. But because Iron Maiden beforehand had been so amazing, it's like whoa, you know. Yeah. Really? I think you, you know, you're you're judging them against their own abilities aren't you and and this is the big problem with this album is that it falls so short i think there's good songs in this album i do think there's good songs in this album there's the clansman future real and the last song coma este amigos it's not just a great song i actually think it's probably bailey's vocal performance of his career in in a lot of ways it's an incredible song, but it's it's got this thing of having some of the worst songs of Iron Maiden's career in amongst it, you know, and truly terrible songs that would not get the cut in any other era of Iron Maiden's career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like... I say, I think the the key thing was just to to ride the waves of the storm. They managed to get through it. They reunited with Bruce Dickinson. They got Adrian Smith back. All the promotion was ready there. And a key thing I think also was that kind of like literally the world had opened up more. You know, thanks to the internet and thanks to just the, the general global economy, they could go to places like South America and Eastern Europe and really, um, you know you know, pack the stadiums or, or venues out, you know, even here in the UK, like I think when we saw them on the Dance of Death tour, I still, I was not into them at that point again. I still thought they were a bit of a kind of legacy act, but I thought, listen, it's Iron Maiden, I'll go and check it out. It really wasn't until I started listening to the Bruce Dickinson radio rock show on BBC Six that I kind of thought, actually, you know, they're, they're Iron Maiden are still a thing and they're still doing stuff and they came out with that album A Matter of Life and Death and I thought it's one of my favourite albums it, and then I thought you know what actually the, the, I, there's, there's still something here you know and um, you know 
that that's enough to sort of make you go well you know that, that's a really good album god i haven't listened to that album for a long time let's stick on number of the beasts jesus yeah. it's brilliant you know i mean um and you know in in terms of like um you know bootlegging or live gigs you know there's all i've probably seen or about five very very good iron Maiden tribute acts around scotland you know um and Every time you go see it, you say, this is brilliant. You know, in fact, I remember um, there was an Iron Maiden, was it Made in Scotland, in fact. That, yeah, they they came up, and I, I um, my wife is Japanese, and one of uh, my friends, she's Japanese, and I said, you have got to come and see this band, because for me, Iron Maiden is kind of like British culture. If you don't see this, this you're missing out on a significant part of the culture of this country. So you've got to come and see Iron Maiden, even though it's just a tribute act. And like bands like Maiden's got, in fact, there's one up in Aberdeen called uh, uh, Iron Midden, which uh, is a, a kind of agricultural term um, from the Scotland. <laughs> but they were brilliant. And, you know, when you play, um, you know, Hallowed Be Thy Name in any pub anywhere in this country, people will go crazy, you know? I don't know if you remember, Stuart, there was a night in Aberdeen and it was like a random night. It was like a Tuesday night or something and there wasn't much going on. So we went down um, Aberdeen's nightclub strip, kind of Belmont Street, and there was a place at the end called The Drum that had bands on most nights. I thought, well, we'll check what's going on there. And, of course, there was this band, Highland Maiden. And we go in and the place is packed. And we look at each other. Something's going on here that we don't quite know about it was it was quite expensive to get in i think it was like seven pounds to get in or something which you know at the time was <laughs> was not inconsiderable that was too bad. um so we kind of hummed and hawed about it a wee bit then we thought ah, fuck it we'll, we'll we'll go in and, and we'll check it out and we'll have a couple of beers and whatnot and just you know but the place was packed and i remember the sea of flags i thought this actually feels like a concentrated Iron Maiden gig. These guys know something that we don't. So we bought a couple of beers, waited for the band to come on, and they ripped onto the stage and destroyed the place for about half an hour. And then all of a sudden, they stop. And the guy singing turns to the audience and says, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Diano. And for the rest of the night, Paul Diano sings... All the Iron Maiden original classics with with Highland Maiden, and it ended up being a fantastic night. And it was everybody was loving it and jumping around, and it was absolutely brilliant. I don't know if you remember that, Stuart. I I I didn't know where you were going with that, but when you mentioned that, yeah, I remember. I do remember that. Yeah, it was a drum. Was it drum? Sorry, it was drum. Yeah, that's yeah. I do I do remember that. Yeah, that was a good venue actually because it was you know. a, a, like it was a, a bar pub um probably could have been a nice restaurant actually because it had volume you know you know you weren't like squeezed in in a kind of like you know two and a half meter high space it was like a, you know four or five meter high space with a sort of proper stage and space to dance and space to sit on a bar and a, a bit of the back where you came in which was like another level like a mid-level down. Yeah, that was cool. and they sold red stripe in a red- can well, I never liked that beer. I, I, yeah, 
one thing, but I God, yeah. Yeah. So Nelly's in, I'm drinking a beer with lots of archaic Germanic writing on it. I have no idea what it really says. So here we go. In for a penny, in for a pound, as they say. Yeah. So, Stuart, yeah, so what's, do you have a favourite song off this album? Did you, did you manage to pick your way through it? And... Mm. Do I have a favourite song? I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, like I said, when I listened to Angel and the Gambler, um, I I quite liked the the single version of it. I, I found myself sort of humming along to that and Future Rio as well. Can't say other. I just found the this album and the X Factor. I just found them just a bit just just not registering. You know, I had them on and just nothing was really. Like catching me. I mean, even like the Klansmen, I, I live. I think it's great, and I think uh, you know. Um, but because this is not yeah, the definitive I, version I, of the Klansmen, the rock and Rio version with Bruce Dickinson singing. You know, the band sounds so mm -hmm. powerful through that gig, anyway. But this is not by any means the definitive version of the Klansmen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, for people who don't know Iron Maiden that are listening and, you know, there might be somebody living under a rock somewhere. <laughs> um, listen, you know, Iron Maiden are, like, culturally and musically, you've got to check them out. Everything about them um, it, yeah, it is, you know, is great. This just happens to be a... a period of time when we all go through it in all of our lives where we sort of struggle, we're, we're kind of a little bit lost, we're just not quite sure what's happening. I think a lot of people are living that moment now, um, you know, uh, don't know quite what's happening. So this this is that period for, for Iron Maiden. They came through it, um, you know, I mean, you know, this is the thing about when you look back through time, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're, you know, when you're 10 years old, you know, one year is one tenth of your life. When you're 40 years old, one tenth of your life is years. So time gets distorted. You know, Bruce Dickinson was only out of the band actually for six years. When you think about it, it's 1993 to 1999, you know, but th those six happened to be when we were in our, uh, you know, uh, teens, you know, and that felt like a huge part of your time because six years, you know, when you're 18 years old, six years. It's a third it was such a life. big deal when you, know, you left. I mean, I don't know if you remember that they they got a whole BBC show together with um, like a gothic uh, magician, and he did bits and pieces, and they did a yeah. gig with it. And you know, it was a huge deal. Bruce Dickinson leaving Iron Maiden. Yeah, I didn't know about that at the time because I like I, I didn't know. You know, I was too young uh, to really know about that. But I kind of like subsequently. I think it's called yes. Raising Hell, is it yes. or something? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, was, uh, you know, what would you say? Well, let, let's, like, Sharpie, for, for listeners, if you were going to listen to one of the Blaze Bailey albums, which one would you I, I'm a big fan of pretty much all of his solo stuff. My, my personal favourite is Ten to Mention, but The Man Who Would Not Die... 
the production on that's very good and all the songs are, are cracking, but you won't go wrong with anything from Silicon Messiah, 10th Dimension, or the man who sold the world's um, is it Blaze Bailey's solo stuff is very good. It's got more of a Euro metal feel to it a lot of the time. Did you, just did you listen to any of the Wolfsbane stuff? I've not really gone into that. I have to say, no, I've I've not really gone in gone into it. It's maybe a bit lazy of me, but um, I get so much out of his. He's got a, about ten solo albums, and. I get so much out of those that I don't really feel the need, to be honest. Yeah. And from the two Iron Maiden albums, which one would you suggest would be the best, the better Factor. one for me? I, I just, I, I, I went into this, I'd not heard this album for a long time, actually, and I went into it with trying to just, with a clear mind and not being prejudgmental on it and to be fair it wasn't as bad as I remember it being but that production job is just so shit that it overrides any positive qualities of some of the songs um, there is songs that work better elsewhere um, the last song on the album like I say is is one of the standout tracks and it's almost like Steve Harris has left Blaze to do the vocal parts in isolation and it just works better as a, a, a as an overall as an overall track but I think there's better songs on the X Factor. The focus is better. It's got a better overall sound. There's less naff bits in there. There's some synthesizer stuff on this um, with fake brass bits that's just dreadful. You know, it's just so jarring and horrible that uh, it's just a bit crap, really, isn't it? It's, yeah, well, it's, yeah. What, what, what is your favourite album? Oh, now, that's a different story. I, I actually don't know because it depends on kind of what mood I'm in. Like, like you said, when Bruce and Adrian Smith come back, it's like they realised and understood better what, the, what I... I makes Iron Maiden tick, and that is good storytelling with good riffs and cohesive solos. So, uh, I'm, I am, although it's a double album and a bit long, The Book of Souls is right up there. I do like Dance of Death, despite its artwork. There's some incredible songs in that. It has to be Power Slave up there as well. Um Iron Maiden, um, uh, Killers, yeah, I really like, there's a naive kind of charm to Killers that I really like, there's just a, yeah, I, like a yeah, punky yeah. kind of edge that I, I really like to it, yeah. um, I think Paul Diano actually sounds great on that as well, um, 
So I, I guess it kind of depends on what mood I'm in. Mm-hmm, and you, yeah, Stuart? Sure. When... I probably would say um, peace of mind um, and maybe... I used to really, 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 really like Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, actually. Um, Do you not think Somewhere in Time's a bit of a, a underrated album there? You know, there's songs on, on that, like Alexander the Great, that they never really play live, but, you know, fantastic storytelling, great riff. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, that, that's a great album as well, yeah. I mean, look, the, you know, there's, there's something for everybody. But anyway, um, I think that's probably enough of, of Iron Maiden for uh, one one week. Um, there's a lot of a back catalogue for people to check out. Um, if I probably, uh, you know what? Actually, thinking about it, probably one of the live albums. Maybe a real, maybe a real live one. The second. Well, that, that's that, that's probably. where I started with with Iron Maiden and yeah. thought that's yeah. that's I I can go with that. That's that's for me. That yeah, definitely a real live one. That's a good shout. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's if you're if you're not familiar with Iron Maiden, listen to that. That will that will definitely get the juices flowing. And I think that another thing, Iron Maiden are a visual band, uh, not in the sense of a Japanese style, but like they've got so many like videos and documentaries and kind of like quote unquote like movies or rockumentaries that um, very accessible and like the band as individuals, people would just be you know like top class blokes. You could chat to and you know no kind of uh ego so hey so sharpie well let's cut that um that's uh enough for today we'll see you on the vrpc podcast uh next week absolutely thanks very much for listening folks